Our theme this morning is justice. And not just any justice, the justice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to start this morning uh, by drawing your attention to and beginning with a song about justice. And my boys will be relieved. I will be reading this song. I will not be singing it. But uh, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. This is the song of Moses. Moses' climax and summary of his life and ministry and his testimony to the children of Israel as his life is coming to an end and he is handing off the leadership of God's people to Joshua. Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Well, brothers and sisters, we live in a society where justice is primarily about how people treat us and whether the treatment we receive is fair. Is it equal? Is it the same as the person next to me, regardless of the color of my skin? Is the treatment receive, does it respect and does it protect our rights. But as we come to God's word, justice is about the standard of righteousness, right or wrong, that rules and protects people's lives, our lives, our relationships, our communities, our families, our worship. And in fact, as you walk through scripture and you see God, as he presents himself as a king, he shows that his justice is one of the ways in which he loves and cares for and protects every aspect of the lives and the families and the communities of his people. And it's with this song that Moses, one last time, is reminding the children of Israel, is reminding them of the good news of the justice that they have in God. Their justice, like their salvation, is not built on their work or their righteousness. Their justice is built on the person and the work and the righteousness of the God who has saved them. And this is indeed good news, because the Lord God alone is the rock. And the Lord God alone, his work alone is perfect. And he alone is upright, and he alone is righteous, and he alone is faithful and without iniquity. He alone 
is true. And because of that, therefore, if what Moses is saying is true, anything less than the justice of the God of the Bible is unrighteous, unfaithful, and untrue. A lie. Now, brothers and sisters, take a good look at the world around you. Maybe even look at the people around us and ask yourself, was Moses lying? Is the justice of this world and the justice that we dispense and a justice that's built on me, my works, what I think is right in my eyes, how faithful, how upright, how righteous and how true. Now, as we return this morning to Matthew chapter 5 and to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking as the Messiah and the King of Heaven. And he makes it explicitly clear to his disciples there are really two types of justice, the justice of God's kingdom and the justice of the world. And he makes the point to them there is no place in his kingdom for the justice of men. And there is no place in his kingdom for the righteousness of men, even if it's the justice and righteousness of the most excellent and religious of leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is because, this is our big truth for this morning, and perhaps we can go to the next slide. God's king and God's kingdom and God's children live by God's justice, not the justice of men. God's king and God's kingdom and his children live by God's justice and not the justice of men. And in our text, our Lord and Savior is going to walk us through four examples that contrast the justice of men with the justice of heaven. And children, since you're joining us this morning after service, if you're able to tell me one way that Jesus' justice is different from the justice of the world, I'd be happy to give you a package of Skittles or Warheads. Warheads fittingly chosen for a exposition about justice and mercy. But I do warn you that the answers come at the end, so you'll have to sit tight. But as Jesus walks us through and he's walking the disciples through, he's showing us, look, this is the justice of the world and this is the justice of the kingdom. This is the justice I give and this is the justice I require of every child of God without exceptions. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to back up by way of review since it's been a while. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. We're going to walk through the Beatitudes and see the heart of justice that Christ gives. And then we're going to go down to verses 38 to 42 and see the justice that Christ requires of his disciples. Matthew 5, 1, seeing the crowds, he, and that's Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted and who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now please drop with me down to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord, and it's a word that has been abused and misinterpreted and horrifically exploited for as long as it's been in existence. In November 1861, a Baptist minister, Henry Tucker, delivered a sermon to the Georgia legislature. And in his sermon, he called for justice and for the God of the Bible to join the Confederate rebellion against the Union. And this is what he preached. Quote, Retaliation to arms, to arms, let us kill. Takes me back to Metallica, 1990. Let us by faith... Oh, obedience and love. Let us by faith, obedience, and love so engage the Lord of hosts on our side that he will fight for us. It wasn't talking about spiritual fighting and praying for people. Brothers and sisters, the history of taking God's word out of context and weaponizing it to justify our offended pride, and our selfish ambition, whether it be during the Civil War, whether it be during the Crusades, whether it be during the Spanish Inquisition, or whether it be on the Capitol Hill riots, is nothing new. 
It is a wicked injustice and a propensity of the human heart that goes all the way back to Genesis 3 with the serpent distorting God's word to deceive Eve and to persuade Adam and Eve that God was not treating them justly. He was being unfair because he had limited one tree in the entire garden. They deserve better. Fight for your rights. And do what you need to do to believe in yourself and make it happen. And when in verse 38, Jesus says to his disciples, you have heard, this is what you've been taught, that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is exactly the abuse of scripture that he is talking about. A use of God's word that takes it out of context and uses a tagline in order to appeal to our flesh in order to justify personal retaliation and vengeance, the justice of getting even. Don't get mad, get even. A mantra of American politics, it's actually get mad and get even. This is what Jesus is addressing. This is the conventional wisdom of the day. And when Jesus speaks as Messiah and King in verse 39 and says, but I say to you, he's making it very clear, this type of self-righteousness and self-serving justice has no place in his kingdom. Why? Because God's children trust in God's justice, not the justice of men. And this brings us to our first point this morning. God's children trust in God's justice, not man's not my justice. Now, as we've already noted, the abuse, the abuse of God's word to justify what is right in our eyes is not limited to first century Jews. And we need look no further than some of our favorite and classic American films. 1981, long before you were born. Chuck Norris, choosing a title for one of his breakout films, crossing over from the martial arts world into mainstream, an eye for an eye. Great use of scripture. Chuck apparently is an outspoken Christian, and you can go to his website and see references to the Puritans and many other good things. But just think of many of the titles of the movies that we love. Out for Justice, The Equalizer, Payback, and I could go on and on. They all follow the same time-honored formula taken of taking justice into our own hands. Trust ourselves rather than anyone else because the justice system has failed. We will make things right in a world gone wrong. And I had a Christian sister who shared with me how in an unjust world, how satisfying it is to see bad people who do bad things get what they deserve. And so we cheer for Chuck Norris and we cheer for Denzel and we cheer for The Rock and we cheer for Donald Trump because they all smack down the people who offend us. 
But when Jesus says in verse 39, but I say to you, he puts us all on notice. He puts us all on notice. First of all, our propensity is that we all buy into this. It's not just them, it's all of us. It's the propensity of our heart and our fleshly appetite. We gravitate towards the idea of getting my rights and getting even. You punched me, I'm coming back at you. And it's okay and it's right. And he puts us all on notice that this get even theology is not from heaven, surprise, surprise, but it's from hell. And to help us appreciate this, let's take a moment and go back to the original context of that phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and consider first what was God's context and what was his intent in giving us that phrase. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Leviticus 24, 15? Leviticus 24, 15. And here... The Lord God is addressing Israel through Moses. He's speaking to Moses, and he's addressing this issue of his justice. Leviticus 24, 15, the Lord God says to Moses, And speak to the people or sons of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, verse 19, as he is done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. Why? For I am the Lord your God. Okay. Nerd time. What book are we in? We're going to go through the context here. What book are we in? Slam dunk, man. Come on. You can look smart. You just have to read. Leviticus. Leviticus is about what? Saint Becky, come on, shout it out, show the men up. It is about the law, Leviticus, the Levites, and it's about the law that points to the holiness of who? Us or God? It's about God's holiness and his righteousness, and we don't match. So Leviticus, he provides a sacrifice in a way in which we can be made right and drawn near to a holy God. It's really about his compassion, his righteous compassion. And so as we come to this passage, this is about God's holiness, addressing our unholiness. And it's a passage that begins and ends not with our rights, it begins and ends with God and the name of the Lord. And it unfolds for the children of Israel a system and a standard of righteousness and justice that comes from God, not from them.
And it's a proclamation, brothers and sisters, of God's righteousness and justice that is not about what's right for me or what's fair. It's about demonstrating God's love and his care and his protection for every aspect of our lives and our property if we are God's people. God cares for every aspect of our lives and our property if we are God's children. Why? Because he's the one who gave it to us. It is his sacred creation, and it is his sacred gift, and it belongs entirely to him. And it is holy. And God here shows, I know every aspect of your life, your bones, your eyes, your hair, and I care about all of it. And he's calling on the people to esteem a life, a tooth, a fracture, an ox, in the same way God esteems it, not something to exploit or take advantage of, but to be honored and valued and respected. So even if inadvertently I kick your cow, didn't intend to, didn't mean to, but your cow has been hurt by me, and he now walks with a limp, Shit, cow. No. It all belongs to the Lord. And I need to honor and respect this cow and its leg for what it is, with the same esteem and the same honor and the same value that God gives it. And this is true of an unborn child and a fetus and a child in a, in a mother's womb. This is the same is true for a child whether they are special needs or they're a genius. How contrary to Hitler, where there is genocide for people who don't fit the standard and requirement of a society. You're of no use. You're of no benefit. Well, to God, every aspect of human life is sacred and beautiful and good because it belongs to him and it is his creation. And we're to come with it with fear and trembling. And he addresses not individuals here to uphold his justice. Who does he address? Verse 15 and 16. All the congregation, all the congregation, everyone is on the hook to honor, to trust, and to obey his justice rather than what they think is appropriate. I'll sort this out with you out of court. No, the whole congregation is on the hook. And they are to do this and uphold this, not for their personal satisfaction or glory. But as he points out, this is for the name of the Lord, for his glory, to uphold to the nations. Hey, I take care of my animals and your animals because I serve a holy God who is not about, I'm just going to do what's good for me. God is calling his people to trust in his character and his goodness and his grace and his justice. And in Deuteronomy 19.15, he says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any offense. It's not a one-off. It's not an individual. 
hey, he did this to me, so I got back at him and we're good. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then if you have your Bibles, please turn back again to the Song of Moses, to Deuteronomy 32, 35. Deuteronomy 32, 35. The Lord says, Vengeance, that's the just punishment for a crime. Vengeance is whose? John Wick. Vengeance is mine and recompense, that's payback, in contemporary terms, for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For who is going to vindicate his people? For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. I want the Lord's justice, brothers and sisters, because it is combined with his compassion. It is just. It does not overlook sin. But the justice of men is without compassion. So we see, brothers and sisters, the God brief phrase, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was given to God's people to point them to God's compassionate justice. A justice that honored God's righteousness and his protection for God's people. To protect us against blood feuds and perpetual violence and vengeance of, you did this to me, I'm going to get you back. You did this to me, I'm going to get you back. You didn't pay up. And it goes on and on and on. We have to understand that this is given together with a sacrificial system in Leviticus that points out there is only one way we can stop the violence is by the forgiveness and grace, life for life, that only God can provide. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was meant to point us to the holiness and righteousness of God. What it did do in doing so was it exposed the natural inclination of our flesh, which is to seek personal vengeance, retribution, and get even, and to pursue a justice that works for me, a self-serving justice, which is the justice of the world. As we come back to the Sermon on the Mount, brothers and sisters, you see that the testimony of the Beatitudes is that this is the very life and justice, self-righteousness, self-serving, self-ambitious that Christ came to set us free from. And he came, brothers and sisters, to give us a justice that is nothing like this, but a justice that is from above. And he came to do so beginning in our hearts, that our hearts would be ruled not by the justice of the world, but by the justice of God. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. God's children seek and serve his righteousness, not our rights. God's children seek and serve his righteousness, not our rights. Have you ever been in a work situation or a relationship where all anybody is worried about is having their rights taken care of? I do not want to diminish what God has given us in this country. We live in a country which I believe right now is the best that there is in the world. God has blessed us. We're blessed with many things. 
But if you've ever been in a situation where all people are focused on are their personal rights, you know where that leads. Jesus is pointing us in a different direction. And he's pointing his disciples in a different direction when in verse 39 he says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And here's another quote that gets misused and misinterpreted. This is not a command to tolerate or ignore evil or abuse. Jesus never tolerated or ignored evil or abuse, physical or otherwise. This is a command for our hearts and our lives and our relationships to be ruled by his righteousness, not our rights or our self-interests. And how do we know this? We know this by faithfully listening to everything that Jesus says and the way Jesus says it. First, Jesus gives this exhortation to not resist the one who is evil. He gives it right after he has said, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So he's putting it with the word but in between as a direct contrast in opposition and a refutation of that get-even mindset. Secondly, when Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, the Greek word that he uses, which is translated here, resist, is anti, against, steni, to stand. And it's a legal term that refers to bringing a lawsuit or an accusation in court against someone who is opposed to you, like a countersuit. Someone slanders you. I'm going to take them to court, and I am going to slander them. And in this context, the evil person he is talking about is the person who is seeking an eye-for-an-eye retribution by insisting on their legal rights. This is the context before and after. This word resist here is referring to a counterstrike, responding to someone in like manner. And Jesus is commanding God's children not to return evil for evil, but to overcome evil with good. As Paul says, where good here is a beatitude heart that longs and yearns for God's righteousness, that is pure, that is meek, and would rather suffer for what is right than to have our own way. And in verse 39 through 41, this is what Jesus illustrates with four examples. He walks through what a beatitude heart looks like when someone is pressing their rights against you. Example 1, verse 39, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In the ancient Near East, an open backhanded slap on the face was as much about public and personal humiliation and shaming someone as it was about inflicting pain. And in an honor-shame culture, a slap on the face was an eye-for-an-eye response for being shamed and dishonored in some way. Someone humiliates you, they say an unkind comment, they push back at you, they make you look bad in front of other people, you slap them in the back of the face, and you let them know who El Jefe is. And in this hypothetical case, Jesus says to his disciples... Rather than fight for your pride or honor, like this person, be the child of God that you are. Or in spirit, 
meek, beloved by God, show this evil and prideful person you live not for your rights, but God's glory, not for your personal honor, but for God's good. Turn to him the other cheek also. Show him the opposite. Example 2, verse 39. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In Jesus' time, frivolous lawsuits were practically non-existent because of the way the legal system was set up. You, it was almost impossible to come and, as in our day, sue someone for a large amount of money because you were just after their property. You had to jump through a number of different hoops and be vetted in the community and by two or three witnesses and people who weren't family members, and it was fairly arduous. Everybody in the community had to know you had a legitimate beef with someone. So Jesus presents this hypothetical case where a disciple probably owes money or compensation to someone. Perhaps there was an accident. Perhaps something came up and someone comes and they have a witness right claim to compensation according to the law. But the problem is that the disciple does not have presently the means to pay this compensation. So according to Exodus 22.6, God would not permit anyone, if they didn't have the money, okay, God did not permit people to go to the point of taking your cloak or your coat as a pledge or as a payment. Now that cloak or your articles of clothing, if you remember the book of Ruth, people gave articles of clothing as a compensation, it was known in the community. You'd give a shoe or you'd give an, a, a, a personal item that everybody in the community knows, this belongs to you, they're in debt to you, it's been witnessed by the elders. When the time comes, they owe this to you. But Jesus is pointing out this hypothetical situation. This person is coming after you. For some reason, according to the law, you owe them, and you don't have the money to pay them back. And they can't take your cloak because the law says, the letter of the law, they can't take your cloak because poor people use those cloaks to sleep at night as their blanket or their cover to stay warm. And they use these cloaks to carry their food. And God set a standard in Exodus. He said, look, my justice is to be compassionate. You're not to go after every dime and penny. When you're dealing with people who are destitute, there is a limit and there is a line. You need to honor this person's care and their dignity. You cannot take their cloak. So what's this person doing in this lawsuit? I can't get your cloak. Letter of the law. I'm coming after your underwear. Two articles of clothing. The outer cloak and the inner tunic. Well, give me your tunic. He's sticking it to you. Eye for an eye. The letter of the law. I'm going to publicly, in court, humiliate you and put you in your place, and everybody in the community knows you owe me. And until you pay me back and make it right, until you make it right, everybody's going to walk around knowing, hey, Mark doesn't have an undershirt on today, right? And Jesus comes and says, look, when you deal with such an evil person, driven by pride, I want it now. I want my rights. 
and I'm going to distort the law. I'm going to go by the letter. I can't have this by the law. Well, I'm still going to be a righteous person and stick it to you. He says, look, you're a child of God. Your father in heaven loves you and will take care of you. You don't know where it's going to come from. You don't know how you're going to be cared for. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord takes care of them. I haven't seen the righteous go hungry. You're going to entrust yourself to your heavenly father. You know God is on your side. You know, though your name is being dragged through the mud and the courts and everywhere else, this person is making a point. You're not that way. You have a father who takes care of you. Just give him your cloak and show him. Unlike you, I'm not going to hang on to everything so I can maintain my dignity. My dignity lies with the Lord, as does my righteousness. Example 3, verse 41, the familiar one. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And you know this. And according to Roman law, Roman soldiers were given the right to appropriate help and to demand assistance from civilians for military purposes. And this is why when Jesus is being crucified and he can no longer carry his cross, Simon of Cyrene is pulled in by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross on behalf of Jesus and for the Roman soldiers. And to be forced to do a Roman soldier's dirty work was resented by virtually everyone. Stop what you're doing. Take care of my stuff. How often, brothers and sisters, do we feel that way when members of our family ask us to stop what we're doing and what's important to us and put it down and handle their business? Nobody's particularly happy. That's our heart. And Jesus is addressing this, and he's saying instead of a, why me, poor me, bare minimum, okay, well, you're asking me, so, okay, let me do it and get back to what I have to do. Jesus is saying, a child of God's heart is different. It's a heart of grace and generosity. It's a heart of humility that esteems others more important than ourselves. It's a heart that trusts God and says, the Lord's going to handle my work, my property, my issues. If you've asked of me one mile, I will give you two, and I'll be happy to do so. Brothers and sisters, think about how we serve all of us. Think about how we work. Think about how often we put limitations and safety rails and barriers, roommates, friends, relationships, so that we don't get burned. God is saying, I'm your father. Jesus is saying, you're part of his family. And he'll go on later and say, look, your father, if he takes care of the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, will he not love you and take care of you? Are you of not greater value? We don't have to live that way. Put that off and hopefully take them together. With all of these examples, you're beginning to see a pattern and a theme with Jesus showing us. He's not giving us a list of rules for conflict resolution. He is not commanding that we overlook or not report abuse because Jesus did that when he was being beaten in the courts of the high priests. He told them, what you're doing is not right. Jesus is not commanding that we refrain from speaking out against injustice. And he's also saying, that, hey, 
it is okay as you go through scripture to seek for justice. The question is, what type of justice are we seeking? What type of justice are we serving? Is it a justice that serves me and works for me? Or is it a justice that brings honor and glory to the name of the Lord? What Jesus is doing is he's using these hypothetical cases to press our hearts, to expose our pride and our self-righteousness, and to point us to the only remedy for the injustice of this world. And that remedy is Christ himself. This brings us to our final point this morning. God's Son overcomes our evil with his gospel. God's Son overcomes our evil with his gospel. In verse 42, we come to Jesus' final example in contrast to the eye for an eye justice of the world. He says, give to the one, verse 42, who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is not here calling us to indiscriminately give. That is not the point. Children, don't go and come to your parents after this sermon and ask them for Xboxes and big screen TVs and all those other things. That's not what is being talked about here within the context. As we walk through the rest of God's word, Jesus shows us there are times where we are to say no. The Apostle Paul in Thessalonians makes the point that if you do not work, you should not eat. The point is made as far as widows and caring for widows. If widows have families to care for them, they should not look to the church to be paying for them. There are all sorts of other areas where we are to use wisdom and discernment in our giving. Taken contextually, I do believe what Jesus is doing here, though, is he is intentionally making us uncomfortable about our giving and our serving. Because, brothers and sisters, this is what the gospel does. It makes us feel uncomfortable with God's grace, because when God's grace comes, a grace that is not cheap, a grace that reigns to righteousness, it exposes the selfishness and self-protectiveness of our hearts. And this, I believe, is what Jesus is going after. He's going after the eye-for-an-eye pragmatic giving, where we give only to people or causes that we esteem. We give only to those who can reciprocate. We only take care of those who can give back to us. We only invite to dinner those who are going to invite us back or who can do some service to us. And think about this for a minute. How inclined are we to serve in an area that is of absolutely no benefit or advantage to us? It's a loser situation. It's not going to be a successful ministry. In fact, this ministry is going down the tubes. It's not great. The propensity of all our hearts, brothers and sisters, is to avoid things that are not successful, not doing well, not of personal benefit to me. It's not a worthwhile investment of my money. And when Jesus talks here contextually about someone who's coming and they're begging, 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 within the context of the Old Testament law, he's referring to someone who kind of clearly, you're probably not going to get this money back. This is a money loser.
And yet, brothers and sisters, what has Christ done for you and I? Were you this great winner? Jesus said, this person's going to be the president of the United States. They're going to get up there. They're going to spread the word, and it's going to be amazing and awesome. Think for a moment of what Christ has done for us. He was beat, but he did not beat us in return. At the cross, his cloak was taken, and Roman soldiers gambled for it, and he did not protest. He was forced to bear his cross by a Roman soldier until he physically could no longer do so. And finally, he gave up all his rights in order to give us a life and a righteousness that we could never earn or repay. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the justice that he's given to us, a justice that comes from heaven, a grace that reigns through righteousness. And we see an image of this, brothers and sisters, in church discipline. Someone sins against you, you stick it to them. Do you dirty their name publicly? Compassionately, you see them in private. Brother, sister, did I get this right? But it seems that there's been a sin or an offense to the church or to the church body or to me personally. Does your brother listen in here? You give them the opportunity. If they can't, then you bring someone else and you don't go and and you come in and you plead with them. And the aim is Christ's justice. Receive his grace. Repent of your sin. Come to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness. He longs to give it to you. And be restored vertically and be restored horizontally. Through repentance and faith in Christ, the only way. But if that brother continues to refuse, then we come to the church. And what's put before this person is you have a choice. You can have Christ's justice, grace and mercy, compassion that overcomes our evil and our sin from the blood of the cross, or you can have the devil's righteousness and justice. You can have it your way and you can stand on your rights And you could say, I'm right, they're all wrong. And we hope and we pray that a person is restored. And so we see, as we come to the Lord's table, our Savior's desire, brothers and sisters, is that you would know the compassion and the love and the mercy of God's justice, where Christ has paid the penalty for those who come to him. He is the remedy. His mercy is more. It's what we sang this morning. It is greater than our sin. The question, brothers and sisters, for us is will we trust in his justice or will we hang on to ours? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, how you have loved us and how you have given to us a justice that we don't deserve. Thank you for this. Would we, O Lord, abandon the justice of this world 
which is so self-serving, which is all about how this works for me. And instead, would we give you the trust that you deserve, that you are a Savior who is good and faithful and true, who loves us perfectly, and how everything we need we have in you. Give us faith to wait for you and wait for your justice, Lord, in your time and your way, rather than dealing with the justice of the world. In your name we pray. Amen.